Amen. I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find one in the back of the pew in front of you. It's typically the, the middle um, black book. It'll say Holy Bible on the cover. I'm not sure exactly of the page number, but I can tell you that Exodus is the second book of the Bible. So you won't go very far into the Bible where you find Exodus at the top. And then uh, look for the big number 23. And I'm going to read Exodus 23, beginning at verse 10, and reading down to the end of verse 19. This is Exodus 10. Sorry, Exodus 23, 10 to 19. For about six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, and in it you, uh, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the word of the Lord. Now, for the sake of those who are visiting with us today, I suppose I should offer a bit of a recap. Uh, for the last year or so here at Grace Baptist Church, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. And Exodus is the continuing saga. It's the, the unfolding of the Lord's determination to make for himself a people and to make that people be for his praise. This is the story of the nation of Israel, uh, which the Lord is in the process of forming in fulfillment to all of his great and precious promises that he made to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. But uh, you need to understand that all was not, how, how shall we put it, kittens and rainbows for this people. When the book of Exodus opens, we find that these Israelites are enslaved under the cruel and the oppressive hand of the Egyptians. And it's been that way for like 400 years. But we also discover that their tears have not been shed in vain. We discover that their cries had not, you know, fallen on deaf ears. Rather, the Lord God, 
he, he had heard. And with compassion and with vengeance, God rose, as it were, from his throne, and he redeemed his people out of Egypt. He did so with a, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Yahweh brings his people out of Egypt. This is a story about freedom. And we've often said in our times together that Exodus is the second greatest rescue story in all of history. What's the first? You might be wondering. Well, it's the story of how God sent his son into the world to live a perfect life and then to die on a cross in the place of sinners to rescue his people from out of our slavery to sin and to self and to Satan. It was, it was with outstretched arms, we could say, that Christ won for us this precious freedom. Now, it's important that we don't misunderstand what it means to be free. I think, especially as Americans, we are, you know, content to love freedom and, and maybe just think about it in an abstract sort of a way, just kind of as an ideal state you know, as an end in itself, we forget that there are actually prepositions that go with freedom. And these prepositions help us to think more specifically about what it is that, that we've been redeemed for. So these prepositions explain, for example, the, the whence and the whither and the why of, of our liberty. So we have, to, we have to remember that we have been freed from something, and we've been freed to something, and we've been freed for something, or rather, for someone. So the theme of the, the book of Exodus is not just freedom in general, but freedom for a spe very specific purpose. The Lord God tells um, Moses to tell Pharaoh every, multiple times, let my people go. That's the famous part. And I don't know if you think about Charlton Heston or Ferris Bueller, but you know that line, let my people go. Here's the not so famous part, that they may worship me. That, in fact, is the title that we've given to this sermon series. We've, we've called it Freed to Worship. We've been saved to worship and to serve the Lord, our Master. And so it shouldn't be surprising that having brought Israel out of Egypt, and uh, as he's leading them into a promised land, that the Lord God is here giving his people very detailed instructions about how he is to be worshipped. A God like this, you don't just make up how you are to worship him. No, a, a God of righteousness and holiness demands, has pretty exacting requirements for how he might be worshipped by uh, humans. And so what we have in this, especially in this last portion of Exodus, what we're going to see if we already haven't seen is that this last section big i guess a third probably of the book is going to be dedicated to the meticulous details about the tabernacle and priests and all of the clothing and ornaments and accoutrements and offerings and sacrifices in short 
what we have here are the conditions that are necessary for people to meet in order to be present with and to worship a holy God. And this morning, in the middle of uh, this middle portion of chapter 23, we encounter some more seemingly random laws that conclude the book of the covenant. But taken together, I think we can see that these are instructions for Israel concerning their worship of the one true and living God. And even though we're not directly under this old covenant law in the way that the nation of Israel would have been, it seems to me that there are some very important principles that we can discover in this chapter in regards to our own worship. Um, Not worship of ourselves, but our worship of of God this side of the cross. And so in the time that we have remaining, I, uh, I propose here uh, five things, five things that I want to show you from the passage that ought to characterize our worship. First of all, our worship ought to be exclusive. Our worship ought to be exclusive. Look at verse 13. This is the Lord God speaking. He says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. In other words, God is demanding exclusive obedience from his people and exclusive worship. His people are not even to, not to invoke the name of any other god whether in prayer or in praise or even in play, I guess you could say. You know, even to say something like, by Jove, uh, would be totally out of bounds. It's not even to cross the people's lips. And no doubt you recognize this prohibition as basically a restatement of the first and second commandments. The Lord God has demanded of his people exclusive loyalty. He he commands that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or idol to bow down to it or to serve it. And I think, here's what I want to suggest to you, that verse 13 is also reminiscent of the third commandment, albeit in reverse. And I think in verse 13, essentially the Lord is saying, You shall not take the name of another God in earnest. It's kind of like a a spin, a, a negative spin on the third commandment. And neither is this the first time that these very foundational commandments have been repeated in in these few chapters since the giving of the Ten Commandments. So you can see, for example, if you can just scan here, chapter 20, verse 23. Or look over to chapter 22, verse 20. Similar commands that keep coming up. And and you might ask, why why all this repetition in such a short space of time? And and teenagers often ask their parents, you know, a very similar kind of question. They, They say, why are you nagging me, Mom? Mom, you already told me a million times, pick up my clothes from the bathroom floor and put them in the hamper. I'm just, you know, just a random example. Well, kid, it's because we know you better than you know yourself. 
And we know your proneness to forget such basic instructions. We know the, the daily possibility that this duty is going to be neglected by you. And in the same way, the Lord knows the tendencies of the human heart. He knows us way better than we know ourselves. He knows that our hearts are, as John Calvin famously said, idol factories. We're just cranking these things out so that we can worship them. And he knows that as his people, this people of Israel, um, goes forward into the promised land and interacts with all these different people groups, that they're going to be attracted to all kinds of novel deities. And they're going to be very tempted to invoke the names of these gods and to adopt their pagan practices in their worship. And friends, I want to say to you that this temptation has not abated millennia later. Okay, ours is an equally idolatrous culture, even if we're not like actually carving things. But what's more is we're, we're even proud of it. The name of the game today is pluralism. And that's not just a description of the fact that it's a value. Pluralism is, is cherished by our culture. And it's demanded that we would give equal weight and value and worth to the multiplicity of gods that are, are worshipped in our multicultural society. Whether that be Allah or Vishnu or the pantheon of Native American deities. That the list really is endless. It's the height of arrogance, we're told, to, to be exclusive. Which is to say that, you know, it's, it's so proud and arrogant to believe that Christians alone possess the truth. To invoke the name of Jesus Christ as the only Savior for sinners. To say that God the Father is worthy of all of our praise. Well, that, to say those things, that's about as high a crime and misdemeanor as you can conceive in our current culture. On the contrary, our Heavenly Father declares it to be a high crime and misdemeanor to even mention the name of another God. The point is our worship must be exclusive. Why? Well, for starters... You know, there's that slight little niggle that all of these other gods don't even exist. The, the idols are nothing. They're, they're less than nothing. The, the universal testimony of scripture is that these are the work of man's hands. These are figments of the human imagination. So it should be obvious, like, what, what is the use of falling down before a fantasy? Or what? to adore some kind of abstraction. To mention the name of another god is really to just invoke in an imagination. So there's that problem. But even more to the point, and in consideration of the specific context, you, you understand that Yahweh is the only god who has redeemed Israel. He, he alone has rescued. He, he alone has saved. And given this ba very basic fact, can you see how insulting idolatry would be? How incredibly foolish it would be? You know, I'm kind of uh, excited 
about the fact that recently my boys have gotten into chips. I don't mean like the snack food. They've been into that for quite some time. I mean that motorcycle cop show that I used to watch when I was Johnny's age. Okay, so we watched an episode the other day where Ponch and John rescued a woman and her child um, from a car that was dangling over a cliff. Okay, and it was a pretty dramatic rescue. Some might even argue it was overly dramatic. But it was a rescue nonetheless. And so just imagine for a second with me that when this woman and, and this little child are deposited safely on the solid ground, that they, that they would say, well, we just have to thank our lucky stars. Imagine if they said that and, and Baker and Poncherello are standing right there. They're, they're bent over catching their breath. And that's what idolatry does. It, it prostrates before some you know, squishy, gooey conception that's just some vain imagination while completely ignoring the one who alone deserves all of the glory. Well, that's not what happened in the show. You understand, the, the woman and this kid, they threw their arms around the policeman and they wouldn't, almost wouldn't let go and they wouldn't stop saying thank you. And I'm saying that the Lord is worthy of all of our worship alone. Our worship must be exclusive. And in the second place, uh, it ought to be established. Our worship ought to be established. And granted, this is probably not the best way to summarize what the text is describing, but it was the best I could do with the letter E. By established, I simply mean that it's regular. It's routine. Our worship is not to just be willy-nilly or just, you know, engaged in when the fancy strikes us. Rather, it should be on our calendars, if I could put it that way. And I think that that's the point that the Lord is making here in this passage. Uh, and more than that, that really our calendars ought to revolve around worship. I fear that many professing believers have this completely backwards. You know, they'll, they'll fit church in if there's nothing else going on. And if you looked at their calendars, it would be very obvious what that calendar revolves around and therefore what their lives revolve around. Their calendar revolves around their work schedule, the, the school schedule, their kids' sports schedule. Again, the Lord knows the propensities of his people, and he, he knows how quickly and how easily we would squeeze him out. And so he has us key our calendars to regular, established patterns of worship. And we see this especially in Sabbaths and feast, which is what the bulk of this material in this passage deals with. Sabbaths and feast. So first, the Lord has his people write Sabbaths into their schedule. We see this in verses 10 to 12. If verse 13 is, as we've seen, a summary of the first three commandments, then verse 12 
is basically a restatement of the fourth commandment. And verses 10 to 11 are an application of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment, as you know, stipulates that the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it, his people are commanded to cease from their labor. Here was the weekly pattern. Six days of labor, one day of rest. One day, every week, set aside wholly to the Lord. But now the, the Lord applies that same, that same pattern, that same kind of weekly pattern. He applies that to years. And he commands, look there in verses 10 and 11, that the people's land observes a Sabbath every seventh year. It says, For six days you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Why? No, no doubt the Israelites would have wondered this. Maybe they would have asked this. They're wondering, why would you eliminate 15% productivity every week? In every year. Well, the Lord presumably has lots of reasons, and we think that we know what one of those reasons is, right? We, we believe that this is a, a good, just a basic good agricultural practice to let a field lay fallow. You know, from just from time to time, you, you rest a field so that the, the nutrients in the soil can be replenished. And, and commentators love to point out how following this command will actually cause the land to be more productive and profitable in the long run. That may very well be true, but I want you to notice that that's not the reason that the Lord God gives. The reason that God provides for these Sabbath commands have very little to do with, you know, personal prosperity. Rather, it is for the sake of the poor and the weak. Take another look at verse 11. This time look at the second half where we are privy to the Lord's rationale. Start with the word that because that's what indicates purpose. God says that the poor of your people may eat. And this applies to all kinds of crops, not just to the wheat and the barley, not just to those fields, but also to vineyards and olive orchards. And you could apply this in every situation. And I want you to just notice once again how this demonstrates God's love and concern for the lowest and for the weakest members of society. This has been a major theme throughout these last couple of chapters through this book of the covenant. And we see it again when we take another look at verse 12. Noticing that the purpose of the weekly Sabbath is the rest and refreshment of the son of your servant woman and for the rest and the refreshment of the alien. Again, the Lord God is so concerned for the weakest, the, the people that are most easily neglected, the people who are most often taken advantage of. It turns out that the Sabbath is a social justice issue. And this is how loving and tender the Lord is, that he's even concerned about animals. Look again at verse 11. 
You're to leave your field fallow so that the poor can glean. And when they've finished, it's so that the beasts of the field can eat. Don't, don't overlook these details. You, that might just be like a throwaway line to you. This is telling us, friends, something about the character of our God. He's concerned about the beasts of the field and what they're eating. The, the Lord is so kind as to pr- provide food for his creatures. Psalm 104 verse 27 says that all of these creatures look to you, God, and, and you give them their food in due season. Take another look at verse 12 and ask again, why a weekly Sabbath? Yeah, we've seen it's for rest and refreshment. Yes, but for whom? Well, we've seen that it's for those who are without status in society and often overworked. But among those in that category, I want you to notice what's mentioned first this time. And that is your ox and your donkey our old friends. They've gotten a lot of mention in these chapters. And, and I think we're meant to understand that our Heavenly Father has a concern for animals. And he asks that we would too. It turns out, brace yourself here, it turns out that PETA has a point. You know what PETA stands for, don't you? People eating tasty animals. No, really, it's people for the ethical treatment of animals. And of course, this group, for the most part, is godless. And so it doesn't surprise us at all that they have all kinds of wrong assumptions. And they fail to make very important biblical distinctions. They often go way too far. But I want to just suggest to you, if you can bear this, that PETA has some good instincts. Like when they chastise us for having a completely capitalistic and consumeristic approach to our treatment of and consumption of animals. I think the commandment found in the second half of verse 19 is very interesting along these lines. It just so happens to be one of the most confusing and contested commands in the law. No one's exactly sure why God prohibits boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. And there's all kinds of interpretive options, we'll say. Probably nine or ten of them. Maybe it has to, maybe this is what the Canaanites did in their pagan worship, and the Israelites obviously are going to be tempted to do the same sort of thing. But out of all of those nine or ten possibilities, I think the very best one, the one that makes most sense to me, is that the Lord our God is concerned for the ethical treatment of animals, and he demands that we would value their lives even when they're dead. And when we're, when we're fixing to, to feast on them, There's something very twisted, something very cruel about marinating and cooking a young animal in the very thing that was designed to nourish its life, namely its mother's milk. I I know this is uh, starting to look like part three of our social justice mini-series. And I know we're getting a little bit of field of our focus on worship this morning, but I just don't want you to miss 
our Father's heart for the poor and for the weak and for the statusless, even the animals. Let's not miss that not only is the Sabbath a social justice issue, it turns out so is sautéing. So we, we, it was worth, I think, uh, our attention at least just for a few minutes. But let's get back on track. We're talking about our worship and how it ought to be established, how our calendars ought to revolve around the worship of our God. And we saw this in terms of Sabbaths and its various applications. We can also see this in terms of feasts. And this brings us to verses 14 to 17, wherein the Lord commands his people to kind of circle three important events on their calendar. And this is, this is framed, you know, at the beginning and at the end of this section, verses 14 and 17, this is, this is framed with the command that three times a year you shall keep a feast to me. And when you look at the dates that are circled, you, you notice that they kind of frame the whole year, not necessarily the whole calendar year, but the most significant part of Israel's year, which is their agricultural year. These feasts are framing that whole year. And we'll take a closer look at these feasts in just a moment under our next couple of points. But I, I want you at least at this point to just notice how established is and ought to be the worship of our king. And as you consider perhaps your own calendar, as you evaluate your time in terms of the days and the weeks and the months and the years, is, is it accurate to say that you are engaged in a regular pattern of worship? More than that is, is it in your life a priority? Like the number one thing, or is it more like an add-on? I think that would profit some personal reflections. I don't have time to dwell there, and you might be thankful, but I need to move on to the third thing that I want to show you, which is that our worship ought to be expectant. Expectant. Now, of these three feasts, I want to deal with the second one first, if that's okay. We read about it in verse 16, which says, You shall keep the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the fields. This feast is elsewhere referred to as the Feast of, of uh, Weeks or Pentecost. And uh, Penta there refers to 50. So this is, this is to occur 50 days after Passover. And it takes place basically in the late spring. Um, near, at, at near the very beginning of the agricultural year, the time when people are beginning to, to reap the, the first of the wheat harvest. And so the commandment was to feast, to hold a feast at the beginning of this season when they're starting to see some of the fruit of their labors, when they're starting to see some evidence of the Lord's blessing. But this is early enough time that the whole story on the season really hasn't been written yet. 
We're, that this is just the first little bit. We're not sure how it's going to pan out for the rest of the season, but still the Lord commands that his people, represented by the menfolk, would appear before him at that time for worship. And I think this highlights for us one very important element of our worship, which is faith, the necessity of faith. The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith, as the author to the Hebrews defines for us, is the substance of things hoped for. It, it's, the, it's the confidence, the evidence of things that are not seen, at least yet. And so when, what you have here is a people in faith worshiping a God worshiping God for what they have just now begun to see, but the whole story has not been written. Who knows what the, the rest of the season is going to bring? Yeah, sure, you've got, some, you've got some wheat in your bushel basket, but you don't know what, what the season holds in store. Maybe there's going to be all kinds of rain. Maybe there's going to be blight, maybe fire, maybe a bumper crop. Who knows? We can't see into the future, but it doesn't matter because we are meant to worship and to give to the Lord our first fruits. Our worship then ought to be forward-looking and faith-filled. Another way of saying this, of course, is that our worship ought to be expectant. That we're even looking to the Lord to provide for us everything that we need. And I suppose there's many different ways that we could apply this, but let me just press into one area, and that has to do with our tithes and our offerings. Okay, I know this is a very unpopular subject, and uh, the trend actually in churches for, the, for at least the last 20 years has been to be virtually silent on the subject of giving. Okay, because... I think that this comes about because in large part there, there's, a, there's a legitimate kind of seeker sensitivity that churches are wanting to engage in. We recognize that whether fairly or unfairly, churches somehow have a reputation in the world as being all about money and after everybody's money. And as a response, many churches, you know, make an effort to not even mention anything about money. They still obviously rely on people's gifts and generosity, but they, maybe they have a box at the back, or, and people just kind of know, or at least the insiders know that that's where you can go and just quietly, you know, slip your support. But here at Grace Baptist Church, we have chosen to buck that trend You've noticed, I'm sure, that we give space in our worship service for an offering. And it's not because we're money hungry. It's because we understand that the giving of our financial resources to the Lord is an act of worship. The New Testament commands us to give, not legalistically, not out of compulsion, but out of generosity. We're commanded to give joyfully, as, as an act of faith, we're asked to set aside at the beginning of each week a portion that we've decided before God to give. 
And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul holds up the Macedonian Christians as example of people who gave in, in this sort of a way. It, not even in keeping with their income, but actually he says they gave beyond their ability. And they did so because they had a zeal for the Lord and they had uh, an excitement about the upbuilding of the kingdom. But many Christians today use their poverty as an excuse not to give to the Lord. But this was not an excuse, I would just want to point out to you, that the widow used. The widow that Jesus pointed out in Mark 12. I think what we tend to do with our checks is the same thing that we do with our calendars, which is to give the Lord the leftovers. The problem, of course, is that both in in terms of time and money, there's almost never any leftovers. As Dave Ramsey famously says, there's always more month left over than money. And to offer your first fruits to the Lord is to trust the Lord even before you have the sight and the substance of the full harvest. And this, I, I believe, is very pleasing in God's eyes. The point is, our worship ought to be expectant. And in the fourth place, it ought to also be exultant. Exultant. Under this, uh, the previous point, we looked at the aspect of worship that looks forward in faith. Here I want to point out the aspect that looks backwards in praise and in thanksgiving. And that's what I mean when I say that our worship ought to be exultant. It's, it's designed to give God the glory for the great things that he has done. So it's when the full harvest that has, has come in, and you know, you're doing like wheat angels in the piles of grain. And this is the point of the third feast. It's mentioned at the end of verse 16. It's, it's called there the feast of ingathering. It's an opportunity at the end of the season at the end of that agricultural year, to worship the Lord in light of all that he has poured out upon you. And the people must not forget the first of these three feasts. I've overlooked it until now, but it's the feast that takes place at New Year's in the month of Aviv. And the feast of, this is the feast of unleavened bread, which you're quite familiar with, I think, by this point. It's kicked off with the Passover. It's that annual feast wherein the people bring to mind and bring to their remembrance that great Exodus event and how they had to leave in a hurry because God was delivering them in such a hurry that the bread didn't even have time to rise because the Lord God was bringing them out of their slavery in Egypt And this annual feast was foundational for Israel's worship. It it was for the, the purpose of their remembrance so that they would regularly call to mind their rescue and their redemption by the mighty hand of God. Well, in the same way, Christian worship ought to be exultant as we regularly remember and rejoice in all that the Lord has done for us. Chiefly, 
in saving us, in redeeming us. It's, it's crucial that we would look back and take inventory of all of the Lord's blessing on us. As, the, as the, a previous generation would tell us to do, it's important that we would count our many blessings, that we would name them one by one. And that's because it would put us in a much better position to give God all of the glory for the great things that he has done. Now, if the Israelites were commanded to, to feast and to exalt, kind of as they looked back on, on their harvest and as they looked back on their redemption, how much more should we, having participated in an even greater story of redemption, do the same. The Lord Jesus Christ, who knows full well our tendency to forget, he, he has instituted a feast for us, whereby we might regularly remember that great saving event, so that we might exalt and rejoice and be glad in, in that great day. Jesus has transformed the Passover meal. And, and he's using the, the simple elements of bread and of wine to, to stand as symbols for what it took for us to be redeemed, namely the breaking of his body and the spilling of his precious blood. And the Lord, our King, invites us to his table so that we would never forget and so that we would evermore be exultant. And I want to continue this thought as we move to our last point. This is point number five, which is that our worship ought to be extravagant. Our worship ought to be extravagant. The command comes at the end of verse 15, that none must come before the Lord empty-handed. Now, if you've truly experienced the gospel, you will necessarily be a giver. And I'm not just speaking about finances. I'm speaking about everything. We sing, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Yes, we come to Christ empty-handed in the sense that we, we contribute nothing to our salvation, Okay, we sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That is, that's all very true. But having been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I come with hands now that are, that are full and that are ready to give my best, even my all, for the one who has given his best and his all for me. Do you see that in verse 19? Bring your best. Bring your best. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be extravagant worshipers. Nothing contaminated, nothing rotten. Look at verse 18. That's what that's talking about. Not staggering in here with blurry eyes because you've spent the bulk of your energy, you know, staying up late playing video games. The, the applications are endless. We're to bring our very best when we come in worship to our king. 
So this extravagance in worship ought to be in the giving. But I also want to suggest to you, in closing, that we should experience extravagance in worship in the receiving. In the receiving. I think that this point would be very easy for us to miss, but miss it we must not. I'm going to say some basic things here so that we don't miss it. These are feasts. Three feasts a year. Refreshment every week. Do you understand what's being commanded here? God's people are commanded to rest and to feast regularly in worship. And I don't know how how many of you were feeling kind of at the a few chapters ago, which was, I don't know, a few months ago, when we started wading into what we imagined would be a very dense swamp of the law of God. And if you're anything like me, you were just kind of dreading all of these commandments with all of their minutia, with all of the thou shalt and thou shalt not. You know, you, we just immediately react even to that language and I hope it's true for you I hope you've been pleasantly surprised to discover just how light and just how life-giving the will of God is his commands are not burdensome you, you hear a you hear a voice thundering from the mountain that says thou shalt and you brace yourself But then that voice continues, and it's basically, thou shalt party like it's 1999. Thou shalt rest from all of your work and be refreshed because of all that I've done. And maybe maybe you're expecting today the, the heavy hand of the Lord to fall upon you in judgment, but instead it spreads for you a table. And you discover that Jesus himself girds himself and serves us. And having such a savior, how exclusive, how established, how expectant, how exultant, how extravagant our worship now should be. We invite you today to come to Christ. And we also invite you today to come to a feast. Literally. I'm saying come to a feast right after the service. There's going to be a fellowship meal downstairs. And I'm not overstating the fact when I tell you it's going to be a feast. And then if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to another feast at the Lord's table, at this table of remembrance. It'll be a chance for you to to look back and be reminded of all Christ has done to redeem us. And it'll also give us a chance to look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, when in eternity we will feast in the house of Zion, and, and then we're going to sing with our hearts restored. We're going to 
He has done great things, we will say together, and we will feast and weep no more. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? Amen. Amen.